This is the Education Gadfly Show. I know we're so far out from the 2020 election, but hey, we live in Washington. That's all people talk about. So let's do it too. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Connor Williams. Welcome back to the show, Connor. Thanks for having me. Hey, we love having you on the show, Connor. You always spice things up in the best way. I, I like my education like I like my food. <laughs> he is a Connor, if you don't know, is a fellow at the Century Foundation. He writes about all kinds of things, school choice, immigration, American families, English language learners, you name it. Also joining us, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. David writes about whatever study uh, he has just spent like the last year slaving over. Yeah, I do it with a lot of spice, though. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I like it. Well, really excited to have you here, Connor. Congratulations are in order. Your third child born just two weeks ago. Yeah, he's the coolest. And you don't look that sleep deprived, so you're faking it pretty well. Well, I mean, let me like put all of my progressive credentials at risk and say that uh, as it turns out, right, especially when you have a third kid that dad is not that useful for newborns in the yeah. middle of the night. Like I, I don't have most of what the guy needs. Yeah. So what we've done more or less is I am now the single father, the proud single father of our two older children. Gotcha. My wife is the proud single mother of our yeah. brand new one. And we're yeah. just sort of divvying up that enormous workload like that. No, that makes sense. Although I, I will say, don't get, don't, don't think about, you know, this is in your future, David. I'm just saying that, that my wife certainly expected me to wake up in the middle of the night, go get the baby, bring the baby to her and then bring the baby back usually with some kind of diaper change as a part of that process a couple times a week, a night. So if you got out of that, I'm just saying, you know, but, but it's well known that, that right of center people, right of center dads do more of this sort of uh, parenting than you left of center dads. I do, feel clearly. like this is a lose, lose situation for me. So I'm just going to pass on that. All one. right, good. Well, we're not going to just talk babies though. I I'm sure he's adorable. You have to bring, uh, bring, bring him next time. All three of them. I will absolutely do that. That would be amazing. Okay, but now it's time for Ed Reform Update. Connor, uh, we can't help it. I know we're so far out from the 2020 election, but hey, we live in Washington. That's all people talk about. So let's do it too. Uh, We've got the Democratic candidates out there making big policy proposals, including some of them on K-12 education. We're gearing up for the big debates. Uh, I guess it is next week. Uh, So curious about your thoughts as you watch this. Are there any of these proposals that you're pretty excited about? For example, we've had what Biden says he wants to triple Title I funding. We've got Kamala Harris talking about raising all teacher salaries to minimum $60,000. What else? We've We've got Bernie Sanders calling for a charter school moratorium. What do you like? What do you hate? Tell us about it. Well, look, as a progressive, I mean, I find a lot of these things exciting and and persuasive, right? Like it has been clear to me for some time, and I think clear to a great many researchers in the field that addressing funding inequities is a good idea, right? That that if we have historically uh, underserved populations concentrated in schools that are also under-resourced, that is not good for them. It's not good mm-hmm. for their community. It's not good for the broader country. So if we can address that by funding schools more fairly and funding them better, that's great. Uh, much as I think that anybody who's ever been a teacher, as I have, knows that we definitely don't pay teachers enough. If we can pay them better, we should do that. Uh, and there are other proposals you didn't mention. I mean, right, we have a slew of exciting proposals around early ed, uh, around child care access, around uh, universal pre-K. I think there's a lot to like in there. But mm-hmm. what's striking to me is that there's very little in there that's actually addressing how we change how K-12 schools or structures or systems run. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. more resources. There's a lot of 
more expanded mandates, better mm-hmm. after-school funding, better after-school access, better pre-K, et cetera. But we haven't really gotten anything much about how we're going to change K-12 education. Yeah, it's a lot of quantity, not quality, you might say. Uh, this charter school moratorium, can I assume that you're not as excited about that one? I mean, I, I don't know what to make of it, right? And I think that other people have commented on this already, right? In as much as the cutting of federal support for all charters means the elimination of the charter schools program, the, the sort of specific federal mm-hmm. spending bucket. I mean, like that's clearly a thing that could happen. I don't like that. I don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I support uh, high performing, uh, high oversight, high accountability charter schools. Insofar as there could be a moratorium on for-profit charter schools, I think you and, and I and lots of other people pointed out like that doesn't, I don't think the feds can actually really meaningfully do that mm-hmm. in any clear way. Uh, it's like banning unicorns. Like you, you could say it, but I don't know how you would do it. Yep. So I tend to think that the research on for-profit charter schools is pretty unimpressive and, and we probably should be much more aggressively both over, overseeing them and maybe really shouldn't have them. But as a federal policy proposal, yep. what are we talking about? A couple of hundred schools across the country. This is not going to meaningfully fix U.S. K-12 education. Like I agree that for-profit charter schools are a problem. I don't agree that addressing them is going to be the most needed thing we do in the next four years. So, so you're saying there's not much focus on fixing the system on, on quality stuff on accountability, right? Nobody's saying we need to test kids more. We need uh, even the word accountability as a euphemism for that. Uh, you're not hearing that, right? Just Shocking. for the record, Mike Petrilli believes, as you just heard, we need to test kids. We more. do. We actually do. There's no doubt in my mind we need to test kids. But Connor, hello, high schools, high schools where we've made almost no progress whatsoever. And, you know, if you actually wanted to move away from seat time, you actually wanted to help uh, get to a point where we're talking about competency and skills. You know what you need for that? You need tests, Connor. Tests, I'm telling you. <laughs> I feel like we're getting off track. Mike. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, getting all worked up. Getting all worked up. To That's, your point. Uh, yeah. Right. Like. It is striking the degree to which they are pandering to the teachers unions. You say to the teachers unions, but think of it a little differently. We're pandering because it's a campaign and the unions aren't necessarily the the target audience here. More school funding isn't just a something teachers care about. That's a great thing. If you're a voter, the sense that your public education, your public schools, your child's school is going to Mm -hmm. get more stuff. Mm -hmm. That's an easy sell. But what's paradoxical about that, of course, is that actually a lot of this isn't new. If you're telling me that our novel, new, progressive idea for education is we should need we should pay teachers better and fund mm-hmm. schools better, I would tell you that that's pretty warmed over thinking. Like we've been doing that. Progressives have been pushing for that, including mm-hmm. reformers like me have been in favor of that for circa ever. Yeah, and that's to say that, paradoxically speaking, this isn't actually easy to do. It's easy to promise, yeah. right? Increasing Title One funding even has some bipartisan support, but tripling it is the kind of thing you say in a campaign. It maybe helps you make some symbolic posturing, but you beyond getting elected on it, it's going to be really hard to do. I just don't think- Well, well, let's get into some wonking, wonkery here, okay? (laughs) I do feel like we've got these, the most concrete proposals for K-12, we've got the Biden tripling Title I, and you've got Kamala Harris on the teacher salaries. I mean, is it fair to say, we we haven't really seen too much from Elizabeth Warren yet. We haven't seen too much from Mayor Mayor Pete yet, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of top tier of candidates, I think. All right, but let's take these two issues. So you triple Title I funding. Some people would say, look, Yes, a lot of that goes to the poorest schools, but you also have the weird funding formula where a lot of that money end up, ends up going to sort of rich northeastern states. You know, you've got the Newarks and the New York cities that are already spending 20, 25,000 bucks per kid. Are they really the ones who need it? Uh, is that, you know, what do you do about that problem? 
the teacher salary issue, same thing, right? I mean, yeah, nationally, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, you know, teacher salaries haven't budged at all for like 30 years. It's crazy, uh, even though we've increased spending, but they have increased in some areas and not in others. And, you know, you don't necessarily, do we really just want to give every teacher a raise? So, I mean, isn't this fundamentally one of the many concerns that many of us on the right have about the federal government trying to get involved in stuff like this is just that it's, it's so far removed. Uh, it's a big country with 14,000 districts, you know, and so trying to have the, you know, the proverbial one size fits all approach isn't just a problem ideologically. It's just a problem pragmatically. Right. Right, David. Don't you think so? Mm, I, I'm in only partial agreement, Mike. Mm. I mean, I, look, this case for centralizing funding is much stronger than the case for centralizing anything else. Right. So I don't, you know, I don't object too strongly to that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I guess I also, I mean, I agree with the points that have been made about it. It it may not be practical to triple uh, Title I funding, although it's a nice idea. But I mean, I just, I also feel at a pretty basic level that um, as much money as we are spending in some of these places, if you've worked in a low income school, you know that an extra 10% or 15% is just, I mean, it's a, it's a fig leaf, right? It doesn't even begin to address the actual difference in in need and what it would take to provide the same quality of education. Now, now look, I can see rolling your eyes, and it's true. Like we've thrown a lot of money at schools, mm-hmm. um, and it hasn't always had the most impact. And that mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, it put it always puts me in kind of a tough position philosophically, well, what, it, because it, I want reform and I want more resources. No, and, and it's really, it, I mean, this contrast is interesting because we have increased spending again by thirty percent over the last twenty five years or so. And we have not raised teacher salaries. So that money went someplace else, right? And so you do have this contrast. I mean, Kamala Harris is in some ways is is more uh, prescriptive, right? She's not just saying, well, here's more money. You decide how to spend it. She's saying, I want this money going to teacher salaries. Uh, maybe this is a, there's a case for that since we've failed miserably for whatever reason, schools have not made that a priority. For sure. No, I think that you can certainly make the case. And I also want like, as again, the progressive here on the show today yeah. to like point out, right, that we have a couple of years of unified conservative control here in, in D.C. that is a nice insulation against any fiscal critique of these particular proposals. Given that we have seen yeah. zero fiscal responsibility yeah. from unified yeah. conservative control of the government. Unified. Oh. If we can blow a hole in the federal deficit and the federal <laughs> debt to do all these other conservative priorities, there is no reason that we can't do a variety of these other things. There's none at all. No, I look, I, I, I can't, I mean, I don't think there's a good re- response to that. I mean, I'm just, you're saying tripling title one sounds like so much money. I'm like, what is that? That's uh, going from 15 billion to 45, 45 billion. Yeah. Come on. That's peanuts. I mean, even in the stimulus back in, you know, 20, 2009, you know, that was a hundred billion dollars for education, you know, and, and there's a strong argument for it for, for the kids. And because we didn't want to have all these people unemployed and it, you know, arguably we should have kept that going longer, right? Here I am saying that, oh my God, I'm going to get struck down, right? But you can make the case. Uh, yeah, look, we're running a trillion dollar deficit when we have the best economy in 50 years. It is hard to make the case that on this issue, we should finally really, uh, you know, be we're, careful. With we're in trouble. We, Republicans and Democrats, we're now talking to each other in a way that's going to wind up in disaster, well, right? Well, I, 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 I'm not <laughs> exactly a Republican anymore. So that, that you know, that that is an issue. But all right. So what do you think? We, we still do have Elizabeth Warren out there. We still have Mayor Pete. I mean, is I mean, there jockeying going on? Do you think there's, are, are some people still waiting for uh, somebody to really come out with a stronger reform oriented proposal? Is look, there still hope for that? Let me just say something real, real quick, Mike. And then obviously you can jump in. I, is, do we really want, if, if your, if your position is right, that the federal government shouldn't be getting involved, isn't silence golden? 
I mean, truly, like, uh, isn't it sort of a victory in some ways that we only have out of, I don't know how many candidates, one or two really speaking up against mm-hmm. charter schools in the Democratic primary season? Yeah. Like, to me, that strikes, that says a lot about the breadth, actually, of the support. Uh, for charter schools. I mean, I, this I like is that. It's I the like silly season. Well, like, like, David, you tell that to the nation's reporters. I mean, every day there's another story about how charter schools are under attack in the Democratic primaries. You're right. It's really just Bernie Sanders. I guess I'm just uh, saying, you know, but, as a Democrat, I consider no action on this issue a huge victory. Okay. But you do want more money. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that we haven't talked about that I think is it, it worth uh, surfacing is that, that while there is, as I said, there's just not a lot of talk. Say, so for instance, right, triple title one, but to your point, Mike, no notion that we might need to monkey with the formula to make it fairer and ensure that really high needs, highly under-resourced service schools uh, are served by this. Like we don't want to do that controversial stuff. We just promise the money. One thing that is advancing for the first time in forever, like we have first time in forever, right? Like frozen echo. We actually have a for real conversation at least in one side now about integration. Integration is finally back on the national radar in some of these proposals. And that's, Oh yeah. Cause that's something easy to fix from the federal level. Not easy to fix. Exactly. The point, the fact that you have primary candidates standing up and saying, yeah, we actually want to put some money into and make priority of integration at the national level. The fact mm-hmm. that Joe Biden's getting beat up on his past on this mm-hmm. is a meaningful advance for the K-12 world that we're finally at least yeah. taking that seriously. And a great way to lose the election. That is a conversation that, is it means the mirror image of what we're talking about, right? On the one hand, how dare you pander to all your voters to yeah. try to get them to vote for you? On the other hand, how dare you take a tough position that might cost you the election? I mean, I, I want both these things, but I'm glad to see some people taking a serious stance on integration. All right, fair enough. Hey, great conversation. Thank you for being on the show, Connor. Enjoy those kids. And and I guess uh, the, the Frozen is something you probably watch pretty often. Oh my God, that my was a, 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 Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love the reference. All right. It's got nothing on Moana. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We just had a nice chat with Connor Williams about some of the candidates' proposals on education. All righty then. Are you going to be watching the debates next week? I don't know. It seems feels so early to me still. Yeah. I'm like, oh, we already in this groove. Blech. Yeah, it is early. And it's, I don't know, with so many of them up there on stage, it's hard to believe that it's going to be very enjoyable to watch, right? right? I mean, a, right. a debate is usually gets more interesting once there's fewer and they can really, That's true. you know, get, get in they're some jabs at each other. jockeying to get a word in it. Yeah, they're probably right. all going to be polite to each other. It's going to be boring. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. Hey. Give me the general election. But Amber, you, you would not have been happy with me. I basically agreed to say like, oh, oh fine, we'll spend triple title one spending. It was a route. More. Oh, wow. It was a route. Amber, how do we on the right make the case not to spend more money on education uh, when we are have a trillion dollars deficit yeah, i know who Already. i mean i know like I mean, seems like nobody cares anymore right like eh, keep keep spending keep spending like i don't know what it's gonna take i mean to be clear there's no money tree i don't think we should have a trillion dollar deficit it's just that yes. well if we're gonna have this kind of deficit it's hard right. to say that you, you know, gotta cut here when you're not cutting here exactly uh, you hear me you're going soft too i'm you're- not i'm just i understand the argument that's all uh, all right what you got for us yeah, all right we have a new working paper out by jeff hennig and david houston that looks at whether providing parents with information about a school's growth and or achievement changes the way they, they choose schools. Have you seen this on Twitter? I haven't, but this sounds like a study I wanted us to do it's long really ago. Ooh, cool. This sounds great. So they use district level measures from the CETA database out of Stanford mm-hmm. 
They conduct an online survey experiment in which parents are asked to imagine they're moving to a new metro area. Then they're asked to choose between the five largest school districts in that area. All participants receive demographic data for each district. So they're going to get median household income, percentage of kids on free and reduced lunch, and racial composition of the student body. In addition, then they're going to be randomly assigned to receive some form of educational performance information. So you're either going to get average student achievement, average student growth, both or neither. Mm-hmm. All right. The process is then repeated for the same metro area, for the metro areas of the five largest cities. So they mm-hmm. do it for New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Houston, and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. In most of the metro areas, this is important, there are high growth districts that survey a disproportionate number of disadvantaged kids. Mm-hmm. The hypothesis- high growth as in student achievement growth. That's right. right. So the hypothesis is that by emphasizing growth, which is less tied to socioeconomic status and racial composition of the student body than is student achievement, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Um, families might alter how they choose schools or districts in ways that might reduce racial and socioeconomic segregation. That's the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Before I get to the findings, oh, I've got to say a little bit about the methodology. It is not without its issues, mm-hmm. um, but they explain it. They do the best they can. They use Amazon Mechanical Turk, which I'm mm-hmm. like more and more people are using this thing. Yeah. Um, to recruit adults, this is an online, for those of us who don't know about MTurk, it's an online mechanical, um, online marketplace uh, where users complete these short tasks, including surveys, and they get a little bit of money. It's like very little money though. Yeah. Um, for a fee, compared, so then they say, okay, well, how does our sample match up? The compared to the US as a whole, the sample's not representative and that it is younger, it's better educated, it's more liberal, more likely to have a child in school. A bunch of other stuff. And they they represent just my generation. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So these people yeah. live uh, in Davis. Down. <laughs> right. yeah. But it approximates the characteristics of the U.S. in terms of sex, race, family income, and other variables. All right. So, all right. Okay. And, and let us say finally that this is, it's, an, it, it's a hypothetical, it's right? Hypothetical. We've seen a couple of these uh, recently. Yes, this is not have. actually looking at real behaviors as you can do in some cases like when the parents use these common enrollment systems to actually rank the preference of school they want to attend so they do it three different times to Uh, try to like make things better okay Okay, they do it again 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 they see similar patterns uh but anyway yada yada they basically say if we'd use a nationally random random sample then Mm -hmm. i mean representative sample we would have seen different results perhaps right Mm -hmm. sure Mm -hmm. um and then they say it's not actually your point mike like if you really did this for real it would probably look different all that throat clearing aside, what do they find? Uh, providing growth data can indeed prompt individuals to choose less white and less wealthy districts. Mm-hmm. Or said another way, more minority kids and poor kids in those places. Compared to participants who receive no student performance data, participants who received average achievement data tend to choose even whiter and wealthier districts, mm-hmm. which is consistent with this relationship we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. The relationship between student demographic composition and average growth, on the other hand, is more diffuse. There were diffuse. So participants who receive only average growth data tend to choose districts with more students of color and more poverty. Participants who receive both average achievement and average growth tend to choose districts with similar demographic compositions as their peers in the control group. However, these participants tend to choose districts that are less white and less wealthy than their peers who only receive achievement data. Mm-hmm. So it's getting a little, I know it's, yep. getting, it's getting a yep. lot, but in short, the provision of growth data inc- induces participants mm-hmm. um, above and beyond to choose less privileged districts on average. Mm-hmm. All right. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. That said, The patterns are dependent almost completely on the presence of one or more relatively high growth districts 
yep. that serve lots of disadvantaged kids. Such districts exist in some places, but not others. I'm almost done. So in New York, LA, Chicago, and Houston, where they have these real high mm-hmm. growth, di- like for real, the pattern holds where you see the growth district choosing the less white, less less wealthy places, but not so in Phoenix, mm-hmm. where the high growth district is high income and mostly white. So they close with the idea that we need to convey more information about the effectiveness of districts in serving kids, not just the characteristics of the kids alone. Interesting. Well, no, I mean, look, that's good. I think for those of us who support growth, this is yet another reason to support growth. It's going to nudge parents maybe to look at some schools they otherwise wouldn't look at. You know, should point out that greatschools.net, where most parents actually do go, mm-hmm. uh, and is certainly uh, the engine behind what you see in a lot of real estate sites and the things, uh, you know, they do include growth where they can, where they can get mm-hmm. the data, which I think is up to about half the states at this point. Okay. Uh, and I think their current formula is basically half growth, half achievement. So they don't mm-hmm. look at it separately, but it kind of gets moshed together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pros and cons of that. Great so. word, moshed. So let me just get this straight. It's they're choosing districts. Yes, within the metro area. That's right. Okay. Because the CETA data are only districts. District level, David, you know that. Okay, right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, so, but, I mean, the assumption is, what, that they would, I, I mean, yeah, they I have mean, to they choose, get, a, you know. They get the demographic data. I mean, they right. get some information about the district. Well, right. But, right, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a high quality school going to a high yeah. quality district. Right. And, and by the way, you know, some people could be familiar with these places. They could have lived there, whatever, you know, yeah. you're, you're obviously. I mean, I like yeah. the idea of like sort of trying to influence whatever you want to call it, like residential choice yeah. mm-hmm. through, you know, value added. But mm-hmm. it's just unless we have true intra-district open enrollment, it seems kind of a pipe dream, well, right? Well, you still got to look at the schools. And and look, stepping back a little bit, there is this question of, let's say you are, you know, affluent family uh, and you're trying to decide where your kids are going to do best. Is it necessarily the case that they'll do better in a high growth district mm-hmm. or high growth school versus a high achievement one? Mm-hmm. Now, it partly depends on the specifics, high growth for whom, right? right. I mean, there's a reason that aff- many affluent parents don't, in the end, choose to send their kids to KIPP, for example, mm-hmm. uh, because that school may be designed to be really successful and effective for kids coming from poverty, but it may right. not be the right fit for kids who are affluent. This is hard things to say, right? And look, I, 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 I wrote a whole book about this called The Diverse Schools Dilemma. You can check it out. It's free if You're you committed. have Amazon yeah. Prime. <laughs> it's free. Right. Yeah, online. Yeah, you can get it. So I look, and, and you kind of game this out. I mean, a lot of parents know, you know, when you're choosing a school, you're choosing peers, you know, mm-hmm. and by all means, if we can nudge parents to be open to those peers being racially and socioeconomically diverse, diverse. that's fantastic, right. right? You know, but a lot of parents also say, hey, you know, I know that peers come with social networks. They come with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, there's issues around discipline. There's issues around behavior. Da, 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 da. Anyways, it's complicated, right? I mean, and I guess I just want to say that it's not necessarily the case that parents should always go for the high growth versus the high achievement school. Right. Well, we we look at many things, right? I mean, this is what we're getting into, all these non, you know, academic and socioeconomic yada yadas that we're trying to measure school that we don't know how to use yet or measure really all that effectively. Um, but sure, yeah, there's multiple things that parents look at. And I'll just say what I always say in this when this comes up, Mike, which is that I agree with that. But also, I think that achievement is, or its proxies are pretty transparent to the average parent, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. growth, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I, I, 
I, I think that might be closer to new information. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's yes. right. No, it makes you go, oh, interesting. Yes. I didn't expect right. that. Maybe I should look right. so. twice. Like, yes. like my kids right. should do better from last year to this year. Like, yeah. you know. Look, this is why I still really like the Texas accountability system, which says basically you're going to have a grade for achievement, you're going to have a grade for growth, and your final grade is going to be the higher of the two. I mm-hmm. like that idea too, Mike. Uh, which is an interesting solution. <laughs> yes, David, we're agreeing too much. Interesting. I mean, there's down, there's downsides, but it does say, look, we're going to just give the affluent schools an A mm-hmm. and just let them, they, so they don't complain, okay? <laughs> fine. All right, their kids it's are probably going to politically savvy, fine, like I have to say. Right? Yes. And we're going to give the KIPP schools of the world right. an A for having right. incredible growth because they deserve it. And that we are signaling that those really are high-performing schools. Yeah. I have not heard that. That's yeah. been around for a while. Like, uh, that was know. in their ESSA plan. Okay. Yeah. All right. Very, mm-hmm. very interesting. All right. Cool stuff. Thank you, Amber. Yes, indeed. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.